Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. When I was training to be a psychotherapist, I was eager to understand all the different conditions and the illnesses that people could experience. I wanted to understand the difference between sadness and depression, nervousness and anxiety, the difference between an expected trauma response versus PTSD. What was the line between being psychologically well and psychologically ill? What qualified a move from experiencing a quote-unquote normal range of human emotions to a quote-unquote abnormal range of emotions, at which point a client would now be considered to quote-unquote have depression, have anxiety, have PTSD, as opposed to feeling deep sadness or extreme nervousness or experiencing a severe traumatic response? What I learned is that the line is very, very unclear. And what constitutes someone who is very deeply, profoundly sad and someone who is diagnosed with clinical depression is not agreed upon by many professionals in the psychological community and the psychiatric community. The DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, was designed to bring standardization to the process so that we could say if someone exhibits these five criteria, then that person is clinically depressed, for example. Professionals in the field now use the DSM-5. But you don't have to be a professional in the field to take a look at the criteria for many diagnoses and ask yourself, well, wait a minute. Aren't some of these qualities that are supposedly making up these mental disorders, aren't they kind of normal for people to experience at different seasons or stages of their lives? For example, let's consider the criteria for depression. According to the DSM, you could be diagnosed with depression if you exhibit five of these eight symptoms. Number one, depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day. Two, markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities most of the day, nearly every day. Three, significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain or decrease or increase in appetite nearly every day. Four, a slowing down of thought and a reduction of physical movement. Five, fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day. Six, Feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt nearly every day. Seven, diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness nearly every day. Eight, recurrent thoughts of death, recurrent suicidal ideation without a specific plan or a suicide attempt or a specific plan for committing suicide. And again, you only need to exhibit five of those criteria to be diagnosed with depression. I can tell you that except for the suicidal piece, I felt all of those things every time I went through a breakup. 
and I'm not clinically depressed. But I'm human, and I feel pain, and I grieve when I lose someone, and I lose the hope of a future with that person. I share the depression example because I'm very much concerned that we're experiencing an era of what Dr. Alan Francis calls diagnostic inflation. Everybody has a psychiatric illness. You are depressed. You are anxious. These very definitive and chronic labels that people just identify with now. They go on Google and they go, oh, I must have anxiety. I must have this. I must have that. Does conceptualizing our emotional vicissitudes in that manner, does it help us? Does it empower us? The professionals doling out these diagnoses certainly want to serve their clients. But do these diagnoses end up hurting more than they help? This is something I've been questioning for quite a while. As I said, when I was a young professional, I thought there might be more consensus in the field. But also Prozac was just hitting the scene. And we began to see the influence of pharmaceutical companies on our profession to a degree that we hadn't seen before. This has led many professionals to be quite concerned of the excessive biomedicalization of the human condition. One of these professionals is Dr. Stephen C. Hayes, who is joining me today. You remember Dr. Hayes as the founder and creator of ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. He joined me in episode 65, in which he talked about his book, A Liberated Mind. I titled the podcast, Liberate Your Mind to Address Depression and Anxiety, an interview with Dr. Stephen C. Hayes. But really, his theory, ACT, is so much more broad than just depression and anxiety. It's really a template for how we can all become more what Dr. Hayes calls psychologically flexible such that we can better navigate our way through the ups and downs and disappointments of life with resilience and with strength. When I saw the title of Dr. Hayes' newest book, Beyond the DSM, toward a process-based alternative for diagnosis and mental health treatment, I knew I wanted to invite Dr. Hayes back on the program. He was speaking my language, trying to look for a different way of conceptualizing human suffering and struggle, as opposed to always slapping a label on someone, which all too often, inadvertently, does more harm than good. I am so honored to welcome Dr. Hayes back to the program. Here's a little bit more about Dr. Hayes. Stephen C. Hayes is a Nevada Foundation Professor in the Behavior Analysis Program at the Department of Psychology at the University of Nevada, an author of 44 books and nearly 600 scientific articles. His career has focused on an analysis of the nature of human language and cognition and the application of this to the understanding and alleviation of human suffering. He is the developer of relational frame theory, an account of human higher cognition, and has guided its extension to Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, ACT, a popular evidence-based form of psychotherapy that uses mindfulness, acceptance, and values-based methods. My conversation with Dr. Hayes about moving beyond the DSM after this. 
If you're looking for some in-depth support, head over to my website, loveandlifemedia.com and click on the work with me tab to schedule a consultation. Consultations will help you clarify underlying emotional and psychological concerns, will target limiting beliefs and thought patterns, will learn empowering techniques from cognitive therapy to sustainably elevate your mindset and mood, will identify relationship dynamics which are impeding your goals, and will together generate a concrete plan for moving forward to help you thrive in love and life. Schedule your consultation today at loveandlifemedia.com. I'd love to work with you. Dr. Hayes, welcome to the program. Well, I'm very happy to be here with you. Thank you so much. You've appeared before when you talked about your book, A Liberated Mind. I was so pleased and honored to have you on the program. And then when I saw your new book came out, Beyond the DSM, Toward a Process-Based Alternative for Diagnosis and Mental Health Treatment. I thought this would be a great conversation if you'd be willing to join me. And here you are. So thank you. So let's just start with a little understanding of the, the DSM for anyone who's not had a lot of psych courses. Maybe they're not 100% sure of what it is. And then what, to your mind, are some of the limitations that cause you and others to think we need to move beyond this model? Well, it's the uh, attempt to try to dig down and figure out basically why people suffer, but it was done inside a particular approach. The DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. So it's the approach that was inside academic psychiatry, and it started initially trying to apply uh, to sort of break up different uh, kinds and flavors of, of human struggles using psychoanalytic concepts in DSM-1 and DSM-2. Then around uh, 1980 comes a different strategy, which is the one that's really penetrated world culture. And it's it's right inside almost every listener because it's that list of conditions that uh, has been so oh so carefully spread into our culture of what you have mm-hmm. that creates human difficulty. And uh, gradually it's spread around the world. I mean, so you have major depression and you have PTSD and you have panic disorder and that have part sounds to normal people like, okay, now we know why. Right. But really what it is is simply a collection of the things that you complain about and the things that a practitioner would see, whether you complain about them or not, put into kind of loose collections. Uh, Usually at least 50% plus one, so there's some overlap. Uh, So five out of nine signs or symptoms, uh, four out of seven. If you do the math on these things, you end up with a bit of a horror, you know, like hundreds of thousands of different kinds of PTSD all being called the same thing and treated as if it's a thing. But the intent of it is good because in uh, medicine, in early days with cancer, let's say, it's exactly what they did. That's why you have all these names for, you know, a lesion that has this shape or this color that's on this part of the body or that. Unfortunately, if a few things can create a lot of manifestations, or many things can create the same manifestation, or if normal things can create problems, this strategy is a train wreck. And 40 years of effort, not one single case, not one, of a syndrome 
just a statistical collection of signs and symptoms, turning into a process-based understanding where you could call it a disease. The last one was untreated syphilis, and that was way before the DSM. And uh, so academic psychiatry, people don't realize this. They've exhausted themselves with it and uh, no longer even want to do it. The NIMH doesn't want to even fund research focused on the DSM. But meanwhile, you turn on your television and you're, you're subjected to big pharma giving you a lesson so that they can sell you something. And uh, the effect of that is it's made us all more passive. It's made us all less responsible in a way. I think it's actually decreased the real vision that we have mm -hmm. for our lives and those of the people around us. Because while it looks kind, you say, oh, it's not your fault. You have this. Immediately, you yourself and people around you start thinking in those terms. They start limiting your horizons. They start interpreting everything you do in this, these terms. And you're much more likely to go on medications that have side effects and long-term effects when maybe they're really not warranted based on the best available evidence. So it's had a lot of downsides. And I think we need to go beyond it because uh, it hasn't paid off. Yeah, you speak to that just so succinctly and so eloquently. And it's a tension that I've been feeling ever since I entered the field, really. And certainly over the last 20 years, as you say, as we keep seeing that the DSM isn't serving those who it intends to serve. Again, it, it probably came from the best of intentions, but because then the medical model became part of the you know, insurance companies insist on having a diagnosis. So then therapists who might be more interested in a process-based approach to therapy, if the client would like to use their behavioral health plan, then they must have a diagnosis, which then, as we know, a label can be a very empowering thing. Other people have had this. There is a treatment plan. There's a known path to healing and recovery. But as you speak to, which I think is so troubling, once we identify with a label, we live up to it. Yeah. Then we go, this is all I can expect from myself. And as you said, this is all others can expect from me. To my mind, that is the most disempowering approach to embody a disease in quotes, and say, I have this chronically. And I hear it so much from my community. They'll say things like, my anxiety kicks in. I'm going on a first date, my anxiety kicks in. And I'm thinking, you're human. You haven't met someone. This is not anxiety. This is you're nervous and that it's actually completely normal. Yeah, exactly. And if you're interested in developing relationships, it's so often, right? practically the first date, you're saying, well, I, I have BPD and I have PTSD and I have, you know, you start feeling as though you have to list yes. out the, the long list of things you've been told you have. You know, the language of have versus the things that I do, the things that I'm prone to, the things that show up for me is a completely different conversation. And yes. it's it says so much more than it actually is. And we've been told we have to say it because that's just science. And are you against science? Right. You know, it's a trick of mind. If you went into a, a physician and you had a rash on your skin that had been there for a while, you didn't know where it came from. And the person said in serious tones, oh, you have idiopathic dermatitis. Oh, I have idiopathic dermatitis which means you got a rash on your skin. We don't know where it came from. Mm -hmm. So you have to be careful because even physicians, even psychologists, even providers 
will sort of enter into the world structured by our concepts in that way. We reify them. We take abstractions, treat them as they're things that can make things happen. They're just abstractions. You know, we do it in so many areas of life. Oh, you're intelligent. No, you behave in ways that are intelligent. Some areas, <laughs> not others. And by the way, it probably varies a lot among tasks, way more than you would expect. Why? Because you use that category. You know, I'm intelligent. Not in every area. No, you're not. There's lots <laughs> of things you're weak at. There's things you're strong at. You know, if you want to focus, use your strengths to move you forward. Find a way to deal with and increase the weaknesses that are there. We should be doing the same thing with our relationship skills, with our mental health skills. If I went to a gym, they would say, oh, well, you're pretty strong here. You're pretty flexible here, but you're inflexible there. And, and you, you need a little bit of strengthening here. And so here's my plan. You wouldn't go in there and say, oh, you've got to, and they'd come up with some sort of name. <laughs> right. And then that's it. And that's it. Right. Well, you do that mentally, though. I mean, but so mm -hmm. why was physical strength and resilience handled one way? Why is diet handled one way? You know, why is your development as a human being handled one way in many areas that empower you and focus you on what you can actually do? Mm -hmm. And then in this area, this most important one, because it's where happiness shows up and connection and relationships all happen. We have these grotesque, broad categories that barely fit. And then we plop them down on people. And so, you know, it's such a train wreck. Uh, can I uh, do a little, little bit of geek about something that I think would help understand why it's a problem? Yes, please. I'm going to do it in a domain outside of mental health, but just to show how big the problem is. In the middle part of the last century, planes were crashing unexpectedly, military planes, and they couldn't figure out why because they designed the planes so that they'd be easy to fly for the average pilot. They, they recruited pilots to be of average height. They didn't have to have really tall ones, short ones, et cetera. It really just looked like pilot error that was making this happen. How could this happen? And one smart person decided, okay, I'm going to actually measure you know, how far away the steering wheel is and how long people's arms are, how far away the pedals are and how long their legs are. So despite the fact that they designed the planes for average pilots, this person decided to measure all of the things that would make a plane easier or hard to fly by measuring actually how long these military pilots, see, we measured every single military pilot, there's about 3,000 at the time in the 1950s. Now here's the, here's the deal. 10 measurements were critical to flying the plane. These people selected to fit a category called the average person so they could be a fit in the plane, how many of them were within, let's say the middle 40% of average on all 10 things that were critical to flying a plane out of the 3,000? Here's the answer, not one single pilot. <laughs> no. Not one. Oh okay, so then we get a little more easier. How many had at least three of the 10 in the average middle? Remembering these are people who can't even get in and fly unless they're of average height, of average weight, etc. How many had at least three of 10? Well, this is not sounding good. So again, I would think it would be a higher number, but it's probably not going to be many at all based on where yeah, you're Yeah, it was about 4%. Oh so look, gosh. here's what's here's what's happening. Okay, apply that now, this 
this idea of the abstracted average mm-hmm. and put that on as a clown suit to climb in that you're going to now say, oh, I have this personality and I have this mental disorder. You know, it is such an ill-fitting suit. It so much misses who you actually are and how many strengths you have that you're not even noticing and areas that you could actually get stronger at that you could develop if you'd focus down on what are the specifics. Mm-hmm. My son is doing his black belt test after 11 years. He's been working hard. He had a muscle disorder and he was very persistent. You know, he's worked really hard to get to this phase, but he's not very flexible. And he's working on that. I know he's doing that right now. I can hear him upstairs. <laughs> Why? Because he's got a test in three weeks and it's do or die. If he fails this test, he will not get his black belt. And those splits are terrible for him. Mm-hmm. Well, he's working on that weakness. He'll never be the best person in terms of splits. But he could probably get to the point where he can get a, a B or better, which is what he needs to continue on his four-month-long black belt test. But it's the same kind of thing. Some of us are more prone to anxiety, for example. Why? Some of us more easily associate negative things across long periods of time. And that probably genetic basis, also family-based, predicts depression, anxiety, and substance abuse as a cluster. And so you're going to have to learn, if you're like that, how do you deal with aversive and scary feelings? They're going to come to you more easily, not because there's anything wrong with you. It's just a feature. And we want that in the troop, in the band. We want some people who are watching out, who are more vigilant. Not everybody, but, you know, that evolved in such a way in these small uh, bands of these tribal primates called human beings. and so. It's okay to have some people who are more prone to that, but you're going to have to learn how to deal with it or, you know, you you are subject to these particular cul-de-sacs. Other people are more subject to other cul-de-sacs. So let's find out what are your strengths and weaknesses and how can you work from your strengths and manage and gradually improve your weaknesses. And that's the process-based vision. No more shoving people into one-size-fits-all and having the plane crash because you can't reach the pedals. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming, and let me know if this is the case, are you receiving some pushback? Because as you alluded to earlier, there is this notion that this medical model is in fact very much grounded in science, although the studies don't bear that out. You even mentioned in, in your book that these biomarkers for depression, for example, looking at all these different genes We're not finding that there is this gene for depression. So this idea that this is science and you with your process base, that's more woo-woo and wouldn't that be nice, but you're just kind of Pollyanna about it over here. We got to be grounded in the science and keep with our insurance model and our medical model and our big pharma model. Do you get pushback from various camps on this? Well, of course, there's commercial interests and that Mm -hmm. really distorts it. And we're in the United States, one of only two countries that will allow direct-to-consumer advertising for uh, medications. And so it's really easy to spin people to effectively to lie, but stay Mm -hmm. this side of the regulations. You may have a brain disorder. It doesn't say you do. Right. 
There's no evidence that you do, but may covers a lot of things. I mean, you may have flying monkeys about to pick you up and carry off your wicked witch uh, castle. That may, it's possible. Prove me that I'm wrong. I mean, we know if once I'm in there that I've got to prove that what you're saying is wrong, you're well protected. But normal people listening to that says, oh, I have a brain disorder. No, you don't. Or at least we're not known to. And of course, you have a brain and your brain is important. Of course, you have genes. Genes are important. But the example I used about these kinds of associative things that interact, it's so interactive that you have things like this. There's a, a, a tiny little bit, just tolerate the, the label. There's, a, there's a, a serotonin transporter gene called 5-HTT, the CERT gene. And people are so excited because it looked like it correlated with depression, et cetera. It was busy. We finally found it. There it is. There it is. In Japan, it predicts the exact opposite. Oh, my. The same gene predicts the exact opposite. Wow. And what it looks like when we start to peel it away, it includes something about sensitivity to social uh, reward or punishment. And this gene has to do with how you interact with others. Yeah, but if you're in a communitarian culture, that lands one way. If you're in a very individualistic culture where you can be in a big city and feel so lonely because nobody will even look at you, it'll land differently. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that this gene made something happen. It's an interactive system. And by the way, there's a lot of things you can do about mm-hmm. that. Some of that, no, you can't change your genes, but you can turn your genes on and off. Yep. Epigenetics are a real phenomena. Mm-hmm. Eight weeks of meditation, you just turned off about 8% of your genome. Every single cell in your body is about 8% different in terms of how your genes are expressed. And they're mostly the ones that are involved in stress-related responses. 15 minutes of meditation, about 2% of your genome shifts on or off. This idea that you're like doomed by your biology is mm-hmm. cartoon biology. It's not real. And the pushback I get is from commercial folks, but real scientists who know the data, they say, yeah, but I'm not sure how what else we can do. And there, the books that I'm writing and the research that we're doing is sufficiently geeky and careful <laughs> and science-based mm-hmm. that we can have a conversation because I think uh, we do need to redirect where we're going in our uh, research, but we also need to interact with just normal folks in a different way so that they can see that what science really shows right now Mm-hmm. is far more empowering, far more engaging, far more helpful because it can tell you things like metaphorically, like going to the gym and saying what exercises to do. It can tell you things where you, you want to strengthen or get more flexible. And in area after area, we're learning that it's not that complicated a set. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do a lot with the processes that are underneath the work that I do. It's called psychological flexibility. It's the smallest set that does the most work of any set that I know of. And start there. It was in the liberated mind, the one that you referred to uh, earlier, and a whole lot of areas from relationships to diet and exercise to mental health issues to being able to be a leader at work, a whole lot of areas start opening up to in ways that you didn't 
know that was even a possibility for you. And it is, as you mentioned, it's truly empowering. And what my concern, what I see in the landscape with, like you said, folks who are just going about their business, but then they see these TV commercials. And if your Prozac isn't working, then try Abilify as the chaser because your Prozac's not working. To my mind, your Prozac's not working. Let's look at some other option. Let's not throw one more drug into the cocktail. And people don't even know Abilify is an antipsychotic. Like they have no idea like what you're saying. Well, and then they, they see the commercials on there. You may have TD. Right. Part of dyskinesia. Right. Part of dyskinesia on, or you may have constipation from opiates on normal TV. Do you know how much those ads cost? Yeah. Here's what that means. It isn't just selling beer. We have to sell the medications to control the side effects from the medications yeah. that are so dominant in our culture. One out of four women last year were antidepressants. Yeah. And arguably, only something like two or three percent would be sensible because, yes, they can be helped with major depression, right. lower dose, restricted, a lot of psychosocial work so that you can transition. Yes, it has a it has a role. It has a place, but not to the point where it's in their freshwater rivers and it'll be in your fish if you catch it, which <laughs> yeah. is what we've done. Yes, it's indeed. insanity. We and, you know, if, if you actually n stop and step back and say, wait a minute, how come I'm seeing on my television not just ads for medications that will help me, but mad ads for medications that will help me with the bad that was done by the medications that are yeah. otherwise being advertised. Something's wrong here, gang. We're, we're into a system that's self-amplifying. And, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is only too happy to sell you two medications. Here's the medication. And here's yeah. the medication to manage the fact that I gave you that medication. What craziness, unless it really pays off. But does it really pay off? Well, look at the long-term effects. Look at the actual side effects. Look at the alternatives. You know, and I don't know of a single psychological thing, not one, where there's not alternative psychosocial methods that are as, as effective or more so with fewer side effects. And yeah, it might take a little more time, but it won't wear off. And right. if you look at what happens with these medications, your body fights them like crazy. That's what tardive dyskinesia is. It's the permanent adjustment of your body to fight for homeostasis when you're messing around with dopamine, which is way too central to movement. And so it creates a movement disorder that's lifelong. It never goes away. And I think we're doing the same thing with serotonin. Mm -hmm. We're doing the same thing with the medications for smoking, you know, enough already. Not, I'm not, you know, I've actually done trials helping practitioners get over the barriers to prescribing or to allowing, uh, you know, prescribers to give their clients medications in areas like agonists and antagonists for addiction, for example, because I, I think there's an important role for them. So I'm not on an anti-medication rant. What I'm on, the rant I'm on is... Let's not just drink the cultural Kool-Aid, disappear mm -hmm. into this list of the things you supposedly have when it takes your attention away from the things you can actually do, number one. And number two, puts you into a, a kind of a 
a train of try this one, this one, this one, this one. Next thing you know, you're in polypharmacy. You've got a you know ten different pills on your on your bathroom counter, and uh, your whole body doesn't know you know what's up and what's down. Yeah, and again, it gets back to that identity that you step into, and you mention it in the book as well, like that line between sick and well, and I find it empowering. And the pushback I sometimes receive is someone, if I would say something like I said earlier, is that anxiety or is that you're nervous? Like any human being would be walking into a room full of people they don't know or standing up to give a speech. That's the number one fear across, at least in America. And so is that really anxiety or is that just a part of the human condition? We are not robots. We are not meant to have no vacillations in our mood. And yet, when I will say something like this, some of the pushback I get is, well, you're minimizing my pain. You're minimizing my distress. I have this and you are minimizing that. And I'm thinking, I know it may feel that way to you, but I'm actually wanting to be part of the the more empowered approach, which is if we don't label ourselves as having something, that we are moving through something is one of the terms you use in ACT, moving through a, a season or a, a period or a, an emotion that is here that we don't have to, we can defuse, again, to use your term, defuse from. That to me is empowered because I realize I don't have to be defined by this moment in time that isn't healthy. I can move toward health. I am capable of that. If I label myself as always having these diseases, as you spoke to, that to me is fixed. It is crippling and it's not empowering. Yeah, it's a very tricky area because Mm -hmm. we don't want to objectify and and dehumanize people and how hard change is. Mm -hmm. And there are limitations. There are biological, social, cultural, history, socioeconomic, and on and on it goes. We really do need to try to understand the world through the eyes of another and to feel what it feels like to be in their situation and to try to start from where you are But that message of starting from where you are is a message that is empowering if you can then be on a journey that will help you get where you want to be. And the problem with this excessive biomedicalization of the human condition is that it says, okay, one out of five people have this thing, right? Well, then the second message, and we should sort of, you know, care for and feel compassion for the one out of five. Okay, but wait a minute. Number one, is it really compassionate to foreshorten a person's horizon in the name of of compassion? Number one. Number two, is it really healthy for the four out of five to be walking around saying, hey, I'm, I'm pretty good, I don't have that. And then at the same time, when they're struggling, when 80% of the population is running into things, and boy, you want an example, how about COVID? You know, does one out of five fit COVID? Is there anybody that you know who's not anxious and worried about the conditions that we're in right now worldwide with COVID? And if you are, I'm wondering, are you awake? <laughs> I mean, hello. Right. So mental challenges are a five out of five issue, not a one out of five issue. And what if? It turns out, and by the way, it does, 
that the processes that help liberate the one out of five, the folks who really are struggling with things that can be put into those five out of nines and four out of seven categories, what if the actual change processes, the things that they do in all these areas and the things that they have been subjected to, their history and their underlying biology, these underlying processes of change that we've learned about in 40, 50 years of careful research on so-called mental illness, which really should be thought more in terms of mental health. Mm-hmm. And what if those will actually be of help to the five out of five, all of us? And so we have a stake in really learning what do you do when you have depressed mood and you have that kind of impulse to withdraw and you you could label it as I have major depression or you could look at what is actually going on here that I could do that would move me forward. And it turns out it's some of the same things that will help you move forward in relationships or being successful at work and so forth. If you dig down to it, I don't mean common sense. I mean, filtered by science, deep understanding of processes of change, how to evolve as a human being. And that what that means is we all have a stake in it. And it means we all should take that perspective and show that compassion and lift and empower because frankly, someday we will need it, whether we're in the DSM holy book or not. (laughs) And right now, worldwide with our families and COVID and and on and on it goes, we need it. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, the mental health community can be there with good science for both of uh, those needs without uh, this kind of clown suit, ill-fitting, we built the plane, fly it whether you like it or not kind of approach that is leading to a lot of human lives being foreshortened in their their opportunity and horizons. And that's one of the reasons I love some of the terminology that you created for ACT, even psychological flexibility, which you've referred to a couple of times, because like your son is up there trying to get those splits done. It, it Flexibility is something everyone can benefit from being more flexible. All of us could do some yoga and it would help us, no matter if we are the tip top shape, or if we really have a long journey ahead of us with our, our physical health. And it's also something that if we, if we don't exercise it, we'll lose it a little bit. So I did something recently for my community talking about how, just how our bodies need physical exercise. Our minds need exercise. We need to exercise that psychological flexibility. You know, I've I've shared with you before, I'm very much grounded in CBT, which is why I love ACT being a third generation CBT And the idea that it's something that we do as a practice. And I know that yogis talk about it's a practice. It's something you're always working on, which gives you permission to be human in the midst of it, that you're not going to be perfect in this practice ever. It's something you continue to work on, but it's always available to you. And again, getting back to the empowered element of it, it is empowering because I know that it's in my control to work on it. And then again, that label, as as we've spoken to, if I have this, that removes an element of control to my mind, which is why I like this model. I much prefer it. And I think it truly is the empowered way to go. Yeah, I agree. And I I think, you know, you can look and see what are your strengths and weaknesses and there's measures and things that are there. Actually on my website, I have a list of them so people can go and kind of take some of the tests about how flexible are you? Mm -hmm. How do you handle emotions and thoughts and memories and bodily sensations? And, Do you know the kind of 
life you want to live or the kind of qualities you want to put into your be- your behavioral in, into your actual uh, moments of doing and being i mean mm-hmm. what are your values and and uh, uh, how good are you at being able to follow through and create plans and follow goals that fit on a values-based journey and so on so uh, we can this is not a message of oh there there it's all all right it's normal blah, blah, blah. it's not just like that no it's it's let's take seriously the journey that we're on and the mm-hmm. the practice thing is relative to you it's not relative to someone else and by the way you're talking to a 72 year old man and i can tell you something everybody gets old if they live long enough <laughs> and if you do you're going to find that some of the things that you like to do you used to do you want to do you can no longer do you're going to gradually find that functions fall away you are not exactly able and so let's say something like if you're a dancer and you're really like a a professional dancer you won't be dancing professionally very likely only a very few when you're 90 you can still be dancing though number one number two you can be doing things that will bring beauty into the lives of others you may be raising money for a youth dance troupe you may be doing things that are a little different you may serve on the the board of a uh, you know a local dance company trying to uh, you know, help them uh, recruit talent and, and to uh, get people to come and uh, witness the, the, the beautiful dancing that the dancers are dancing. So there's a term in, in aging that points to this, which is a selective optimization of looking at how do I want to be given what life has served up to me now? So at my age, what starts happening with my cohort is that people have things happen. Like, they don't talk about it publicly, but I've, you know, my friends who, for example, they can only use catheters now. They're never mm-hmm. going to be able to pee normally again. Yeah. Okay, does that have to be a huge burden? Well, it is a burden. Mm-hmm. It's not fun. No. But when you look at it, when you use it as an opportunity to apply these kind of psychological skills, if you've been doing your flexibility work, mm-hmm. it's kind of like when you're now challenged with something that is a little difficult. When a friend of yours has died or when you find that you're we're going to have to change your diet in a pretty major way because otherwise that second heart attack is going to happen or whatever the thing may be, you know, you're going to be asked of life. How flexible are you? Mm-hmm. And if you never worked on that, if you didn't practice, you're going to have a hard time answering that question in a positive way. And a gerontologist uh, I, I know says it this way. Uh, when you get old enough, you start uh, revealing the parts of you that you never developed and that you never uh, uh, allowed yourself to become expert at. You're going to show your worst when when you're you're starting entering into early uh, dementia for example people respond to that in very very different ways you're going to live for eight nine years a lot of that will actually still be a real human journey and some people listening to me right now watch what happens as soon as i said you're entering into uh, cognitive decline or, or early stage dementia you almost mentally want to cross those people out 
Oh, well, their life is done. Their life is over. No, it's not. Yes, when you get to late stage dementia, you can read, you don't know where you are, you have to be in a care facility, et cetera. Yes, of course, I understand. There's not many things that we normally think of as a, an aspirational goal of life that you can still do. But you have years where you can write and reason and participate and be part of things. So, you know, this kind of happy, happy, joy, joy cartoon version uh, doesn't take people where they are and empower them to walk through life as it's actually lived. Mm-hmm. And life is actually lived is not sugar soup. Mm-hmm. It's a rich uh, stew that includes lots of different flavors. And having the flexibility to, and strength to be able to step up to that mentally, if you're not practicing those skills now, well, it's very much like doing your push-ups or your stretching exercises in the morning. Uh, you might start now because you're going to need it. Dan invented it because I kept burning my tongue on my black coffee. And then we realized the perfecter could do so much more. It's the only way to brew coffee or tea and then immediately ice it for iced coffee or iced tea without watering down the flavor. It also brings bourbon to a perfect chill, again, without diluting it or bruising the flavor notes. But my favorite application, wine. The perfecter takes your room temperature red to the recommended low 60s in just 20 seconds. And as a bonus, the Perfector aerates your vintage as well. Check out all the Perfector's applications, including bringing white wine to its most flavorful temperature at drinkperfection.com. Love and Life listeners can use promo code PODCAST at checkout for 20% off your Perfector. Thinking back to the DSM, what would it look like? You know, you have a quote in the book that you assert that a process-based approach is key for the future of evidence-based care. And I think some might put those as polar opposites, right? There's evidence-based and that's science. And then process is this more fluid. And what would it look like to bring the process-based, which I think your work absolutely does because it's so grounded in research, all your work. I mean, in The Liberated Mind, you talk about that extensively. What does it mean to say that a process-based approach is key for the future of evidence-based care? Well, we have over the last 40, 50 years, in addition to all those things people are probably used to hearing about, you know, even with this vaccine, you know, people are like learning the details of randomized controlled trials. I love it. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> and that happens over in the mental health side, the behavioral health side, too. You know, and uh, frankly, the folks who are working out how to do that, some of those are very much part of the behavioral science community. But they've also worked out how do you detect the functionally important pathways of change? In other words, if you have some sort of intervention that produces positive outcomes, how does it work? How does it get from here to there? Mm-hmm. And when you know how it works, then you can target it with lots of different things. That's been true in physical medicine for a long time. We didn't know how aspirin worked. When we finally figured it out, a whole bunch of other means opened up because very quickly we could then learn how to target some of those processes that are involved in pain, in acute pain. Well, I uh, just came out of a conference called Evolution of Psychotherapy, which is one of the largest uh, conferences for mental health kinds of issues in the world, and kind of an odd one because a very small number of people are allowed to talk, and a lot of people come. And thankfully, they did uh, give me the day as last allowed me to talk, and I 
in my invited address, I talked about a project where we looked at every single study that had ever been done in the history of the planet with a psychological outcome and a psychological treatment that claimed in a statistically appropriate way, the, the word for it is called mediation. I'm not going to go into the geek stats of it, but <laughs> to have identified the functionally important pathway of change for an intervention that made a positive difference in people's lives. Every single study. And then we summarize them and look to see, okay, what are the processes that are most frequently cited in the literature as really critical and helpful in moving people forward? And it's a relatively small set. So, for example, um, acceptance, mindfulness, and psychological flexibility are among the top six. Well, those are all kinds of things that I'm pretty comfortable with because yeah. they're things that are right inside the act journey. And you just take what's in our conversation culturally. We are learning more about how to bring mindfulness methods into our daily lives so that our attention could be more flexible, fluid, and voluntary, and so that we can be more open to our own cognitive and emotional life. But anchor our feet firmly in the here and now, consciously, from this kind of part of us that is able to notice this more spiritual part of us. So consciously being in, in the now and more emotion, uh, emotionally and, and cognitively open and able to attend to what's of importance in a way that's uh, flexible, fluid, and voluntary, man, is that useful? Absolutely. But if you don't know that that's why it works, and you just hear somebody talking about mindfulness, 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 you may then get into mindfulness work that's, for example, you can easily buy apps that would do it, Calm, Headspace, et cetera, the things you see advertised. Mm -hmm. All fine, all good, but mindfulness can be used for other purposes. You can use it to try to dampen down and eliminate emotions. You can do it to suppress and push away thoughts. And we get now people saying things that makes me cringe, you know, like, you know, you take care of the kids. I got to go meditate. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Meditation is so that you have the flexibility so that you're able and empowered to do the hard things. Unless you want to be a monk and collect alms, I'm fine. Go <laughs> on the top of the mountain and go for it, dude. That's great. But most of us got interested in mindfulness because in the cacophony of the modern world, we need it. And here's this evidence, process-based evidence. Mindfulness as a process is key to your mental health. You don't necessarily have to learn it through mindfulness methods. You could learn it through your spiritual and religious traditions of all kinds. I mean, I was raised a Catholic, and my uh, mother would readily subject me to small amounts of distress in a meaningful context. For example, being on my knees in Stations of the Cross, and I didn't understand what it meant, and I was too little to understand why. And she would say, offer it up, dear, offer it up. <laughs> Meaning, you can notice discomfort in a way that actually empowers you to carry it as part of a meaningful life journey and connect you to others who have to carry a lot more suffering than that. Mm. And it softens you 
it makes you more compassionate, it makes you more interested in other people and their experience at its best. I think it's a mindfulness skill. They didn't use the M word. No. Well, some of the Christian mystics did, but uh, you know, in normal church services, they didn't use that M word, which as soon as you do, people say, oh, it's Buddhist. And that's not just Buddhist. All of our wisdom and spiritual traditions teach mindfulness. Why? Because we're not so dumb. We have, we've noticed what works for people for a long time. The psychotherapists are the new kids on the block. <laughs> but, you know, it's nice when science comes up and say, yeah, emotional acceptance, really, really important. Yeah, mm -hmm. mindfulness. Yeah, self-efficacy. Self-efficacy shows up a lot, which is what? Being able to connect with, I can do this. Mm -hmm. I can change. I can grow. I can do this. You know, in that kind of affirmative stance of not I'm Guy Grand, but I'm a person who knows how to get better. And mm -hmm. I'm determined. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm going for it. That little piece, there's another process. So I think we can take our Western science traditions, our spiritual and religious traditions, they'll harmonize deeply all of our different clinical traditions with all their different terms and their little schoolyard fights <laughs> and focus on tools we can use that are linked to the processes that, are mat that matter. And that's a five out of five gift and contribution that mental health and behavioral health science can make uh, to the modern world. And we've created in the modern world such a busy and objectifying and challenging situation where all of us are exposed to pain and horror as a regular dot on our screens. All of us are exposed to comparison. Mm. All of us are exposed to excessive amounts of judgment on our newscasts that turn out to be shout casts and judgment casts. Yeah. And if we don't create modern minds for this modern world, we're going to drown in them. And so let's take Western science and get a focus on the tools we can use linked to the processes that matter. And um, that would be a wonderful contribution of science to the mental and behavioral health of the entire public, including those who are suffering with what we now call mental illness and put into these categorical uh, cubbyholes. Indeed. Let's connect on social. I'm most active on Instagram, where I post original quotes, infographics, and I tackle trending topics in my love smarter, not harder IGTVs. On Insta, you can find me at Dr. Karen, D-R-K-A-R-I-N. I'm also on Facebook at Dr. Karen Anderson April and on Twitter at Dr. Karen Anderson. Dr. Hayes, as we wrap up, what would you imagine, I guess, if you could wave a magic wand, and I think your work is absolutely moving us toward this, and, and at the end of your book, you say, it is time to take the field in a bold new direction. What would that bold new direction look like? Whereas I spoke to earlier, if I go to a therapist right now and I want to use my behavioral health insurance, they're going to give me a diagnosis. They're going to then view what I present to them through that lens, which again can be a lens that may or may not be empowered. It may or may not be something that can help the therapist actually help me. It may constrain the therapist actually. 
So we have this model that we've spoken to today. What would it look like to really move in that bold new direction? And we're talking about the day-to-day experience of psychotherapy, for example, and how it would be funded and how it would look. How would it look different? Well, it's uh, kind of ironic because we're, we're doing it right now in physical health. I mean, if you look at what is uh, in the um, Affordable Care Act, for example, and the impact that it's had, most of us, if we're in a, a large employer, we, we're getting uh, things uh, in our inbox about the wellness program, about the prevention uh, program, about uh, you know stop smoking things that are for free, or for diet and exercise things that are very low cost, or for you know some of us are lucky enough to actually have in our uh, work facilities uh, places where we can uh, take a little mindfulness time out, or where we can uh, exercise, or where we can learn uh, skills. I mean, we've begun to think of physical health, physical disease as being linked in such a way that promoting health practices is a key part of what the healthcare system should pay for. And the way that it's paid for is behind the scenes. Some of the healthcare premiums are kicked back to the employers on the basis and part of the costs that are deflected and also by the known science as to how do we prevent physical Mm -hmm. Uh, disease by promoting physical health. There's no reason why that couldn't be part of our psychotherapy work. You know, the five out of five challenges that we face could be on a continuum where you are allowed not just to, you know, give these signs and symptoms of mental illness, but to talk about the mental and behavioral health goals that you have and what we know about how to empower you to achieve them. And some of those things will be things like apps, and some of those things will be books, and some of those things will be websites, and some of those things will be peer support groups. Just like, you know, in your exercise program, you might, you know, have your morning walk group that you're part of, and you might even have that encouraged by your employer who may set that up for you know, something you can do during your lunch hour and so on. So in the same way, I think it isn't la-la land. It isn't like, you know, everybody should be able to go to a spa, uh, you know, uh, 365 days a year. Uh, There's no reason why the healthcare system can't include mental and behavioral health as part of what it does. And there's no reason why we can't be thought of as mental health and behavioral health practitioners, a little bit more like the, the family dentist or the family physician who has a mix of prevention goals. You're going to get your teeth cleaning. Is there any reason? Is there a disease? That, no, no, it's not. It's, right. it's paid for because it prevents gum disease mm-hmm. in the same way. Uh, why can't we be part of a, a thing where almost everybody is involved in some sort of mental health practice? Mm-hmm. behavioral health practice with with professional encouragement and support uh yes with some 50 minute hours but not mm-hmm. just that with all of the different things we can now deploy through the great technological tools that we have that will uplift and empower people and be based on actual evidence not just uh you know some story that we tell but know the actual studies that have been done that this makes a difference in people's lives and that process-based approach uh, 
can mean smaller bumps at the right time. We actually have data, for example, on your phone. Periodically, we did a study where, how are things going for you? What's going on? Just a couple questions. Mm -hmm. And would bump right then and there with a tiny little suggestion of things that could help in terms of your mental and behavioral health with that exact situation. And we got better outcomes than these big protocols dumped on people's heads with everything you can ever think about right. that might be useful for depression. That's not how people use information. Yeah. They want it when they need it. Mm-hmm. And why can't that be, uh, you know, when your UPS driver shows up, as soon as he drives away, he's turning on the podcast as to how to deal with the stresses that we're putting uh, people through with this new economy that's 1099 based and people are mm-hmm. constantly doing almost piecework and so forth. I mean, we can put mental health supports where they're needed if we start thinking about mental and behavioral health in a totally new way. And uh, I think that's the future that's coming. It's going to get here because the data say it should, mm-hmm. and it'll be better for the human community. Well, I really appreciate your work and I'm thankful for what you're doing to take the field in a bold new direction. And I want to, again, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it, Dr. Hayes. Where can people find out more? You mentioned they could take a quiz about values and psychological flexibility on your website. Let them know if they would like to take advantage of that, where to find you. Sure. If you just go to my name.com, stephenchayes.com, and um, the clicks that get in there are something like resources, and then it says something like my flexibility skills, and you can actually take some of those measures. If you want to learn more about the work I do, just click as you wait, come in on yes, please send it to me, which means I'll send you a little mini course on ACT, and then I'll put you on my clinical newsletter list. It, but it's not just for therapists, it's all for just for normal folks. And it's my blogs and stuff just showing up every three or four weeks. If you ever get irritated with it, it's a one-click opt-out, so I'm not going to spam you. <laughs> and, um, but uh, it's, it's pretty easy to connect with my work that way. Just go to stephenchayes.com. Wonderful. Thanks again, Dr. Hayes. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for the opportunity. I hope I've been useful. The love and life hack for this week is you aren't your diagnosis. Your identity, your emotional and psychological state is much broader and bigger and more complex and more resilient than a list of criteria that has perhaps boxed you in even in the way that you understand yourself. If you've resonated with this topic and would like to hear more, check out my episode with Dr. Alan Francis. He's a psychiatrist. He was actively involved. In fact, he chaired the steering committee for the DSM-4. But as you can tell from the title of his book, he is very disappointed and even appalled at the direction the psychiatric community is heading in. His book is called Saving Normal, an insider's revolt against out-of-control psychiatric diagnosis DSM-5, Big Pharma, and the Medicalization of Ordinary Life. Dr. Francis joins me in episode 22, and I called the episode, Is Anybody Normal Anymore? Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril. As always, I so appreciate you spending part of your day with me. 
Connect with me further by heading over to my website and signing up for my newsletter. You can also find information about the next group that is rolling out very soon. If a community of like-minded women leveling up in love and life sounds good to you, please join us. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abram.